church? Hell no. Are you no longer feeling comfortable in church? This podcast is for individuals who are desperately missing God, but don't know how to find Him. Substance abuse, domestic violence, sex offenses, acrimonious divorce can contribute to discomfort in the church. For these individuals, church is just not an option anymore. Ordained minister Dennis Hall and his guests invite you to listen to this podcast for topics that are inspiring, uplifting, and will bring hope to those who just feel church is not relevant in their lives today. Hello, I'm Dr. Dennis Hall, and I am delighted that you're listening today to this podcast. It's been an unbelievable week in America. It's uh, the kind of things that have been going on, mainly political, are really uh, milestones in our history. Uh, This week, we had a nationally televised debate among uh, Republican uh, candidates for the uh, nomination to be the president of the United States. And, of course, the leading candidate, the former president, was not there. He was not part of the debate, uh, I think, just because he has such a huge lead over these other candidates. And then later in the week, the former president, President Trump, uh, was indicted in a court in Georgia and had to be uh, had to present himself and even have a mugshot made of a former uh, president. Now, th- these activities have brought all kinds of commentary from the political left and the political right. And uh, I just have to tell you, all of these commentaries uh, reveal the disdain and the hatred, the hatred of one another among uh, these political parties and and political leaders. I, I have read and seen that some political scientists are calling this level of, uh, of hatred really a prelude to democratic elapse. Now, that's scary. That's scary, and, and all of us should be alarmed. And I get the sense that a lot of Americans are really tired of this kind of uh, bickering and this kind of hatred that things be expressed back and forth between uh, political leaders. It was not always this way. If you look back 40 years uh, and you ask uh, uh, people how to rate, that is, whether you're favorable or warm, or whether you have a favorable or warm opinion of people in the opposite political party, uh, the the average Democrat and the average Republican uh, said they were, they felt okay about the opposite party. Amazing. But for the last four decades, at least, the uh, partisans in both parties, Democrats and and Republicans, have increasingly turned against each other in in this escalating cycle of dislike and distrust and hatred. Now, we ask ourselves, well, what are some of the what are some of the reasons that have caused this? And, And It's pointed out that there's been a gradual movement of Democrats and Republicans uh, along urban-rural and conservative-liberal lines, and uh, a large percentage of conservative 
evangelical Christians have aligned with the Republican Party. The reflection of what's happened uh, between these parties, between liberal and conservative lines. You know, uh, if you go back, say, 40 years, the Republican Party had a significant share of moderates and liberals and included a tradition of uh, moderate, good government, Yankee Republicanism that dated back to President uh, Lincoln. And the Democratic Party uh, once had a significant share of conservative populists from the South and across the uh, uh, Great Plains. Well, today, it's just simply harder for voters to hold a viewpoint that doesn't align with their party. For instance, there are far fewer anti-abortion Democrats or abortion right Republicans now than there was just a mere 30 years ago. And uh, the reason is these kinds of stances are unwelcome in these respective political parties. So we have leaders today in both parties uh, accusing people in the other party of destroying democracy. They are the enemy. They are destroying our democracy. Demeaning, name-calling is commonplace among the politicians today. And then more and more, we're hearing the Republican Party referred to as a cult. And those who, I guess, support President Trump are, are some kind of cultist and of course, as I said earlier, this is the home. The Republican Party is the home of the majority of conservative evangelical uh, Christians. So what's happening to Christian faith in America? Is it, has it become dangerous in America to be a Christian, to have Christian faith? Well, you know, Christians uh, in America have been on the losing end of what some people call the cultural war contest for a long time uh, on school prayer, same-sex marriage, or transgenderism, or freedom to follow one's Christian faith in your business, and, and other issues. Um, it sure doesn't seem like Christians have a, a major voice at the marketplace, and there just seems to be that that there's new, vigorous secularism that has catapulted mockery, mockery of Christianity into the mainstream. You know, anti-Christian activists refer to Christians as bigoted, homophobic, misogynistic, xenophobic hate mongers. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? who through their anti-abortion activities wage war on women. Now, those are the labels that are being thrown around regarding Christians in our society. Now, you couple this with the fact that, uh, that Americans who identify themselves as conservative evangelical Christians have declined from 65% in 1996 to 40% today, based on several national surveys. Bottom line is, fewer and fewer people are identifying themselves 
as conservative evangelical Christians. So, we're not surprised then, are we, to see some of the faithful pay unexpected prices for their beliefs. A teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. Football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field after a game. Or the fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teachings. Uh, you know, Marine court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. Bakers, florists, uh, wage uh, web page designers prosecuted for refusing to use their talents to support gay marriages. And Christian student groups like the university group kicked off campuses to the a number of Christian adoption agencies across America attacked, and many more examples of Christians being under attack in America. Now, don't get me wrong. There is uh, zero equivalent, I would say, zero equivalent, no comparison between the horrors of genocide against a Christian, uh, Christians around the world. No comparison. But there is a quiet persecution of believers in the West. It's underway and it's going on. And when American citizens become fearful of expressing their religious views, something has snaked its way into the marketplace. It's an insidious intolerance for religion that has no place in a country that was founded on religious freedom. You know, as Christians experience this unprecedented level of hatred and hostility, they're asking, why do they hate us so much? Why do they hate us so much? You know, politicians and judges and journalists, producers, educators, and many other leaders are sympathetic to and tolerant of every kind of false religion and every kind of perversity except when it comes to Christian teaching and values. Now, Jesus told his followers in John fifteen twenty that if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. So, we Christians understand that Jesus warned us. He warned us that our commitment to following Jesus would create persecution. But you know, contemporary Christians, they typically pay their taxes, they pray for the nation's leaders, they give generously to charities, volunteer in local schools and community projects, feed the homeless. You know, send millions of dollars and thousands of people abroad to help needy nations and make many other positive contributions to society around the world. These Christians are asking, why do they hate us so much? Why do they hate us so much? You know, the famous um, politician R.C. Sproul supplies an, explan an excellent explanation in his book for this kind of irrational hatred 
in chapter 4 of his book, The Holiness of God, he uses the famous Peter principle, which says people will tend to rise to their level of incompetence in corporate structure. People get uh, keep getting promoted until they end up in a job that's beyond their abilities and where they cease to do well. And then he points out that the super competent, super competent in corporations, the super competent are, are an exception to this rule. They tend not to succeed by moving up the ladder. Why? Because their bosses are frightened and threatened by their competency. Now, the result is they often have to leave the company to get an opportunity to move up. Now, the point that R.C. Sproul is making is that their advancement is hindered because their bosses are afraid of being shown up. And then he goes on to point out that Jesus was the ultimate super competent, you know, and it's part of the reason why he was hated. Now, there were many reasons why Jesus was hated, but one of the reasons was he absolutely terrified those who were in charge. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, they they were renowned for their so-called holiness, but Jesus exhibited authentic holiness. And these counterfeiters were not pleased. Now, with the appearance of Jesus, uh, their righteousness took on the luster of unrighteousness. So today's Christians reflect the holiness of Christ. Therefore, many in the world would far prefer to be surrounded by homosexuals, thieves, polygamists, criminals, every false religion under the sun than spend time with holy Christians. Christians simply make them feel guilty, and therefore Christians must be destroyed. Politically, I'm not saying here in America people are being assassinated like they are in other countries. But people are being destroyed in their workplace, um, in their business, in their roles in the community. They're being suppressed. They're being pushed out of the marketplace. So right here, the same principles uh, are in place, and that is Christians must be destroyed. The situation in America is causing many Christians to become callous toward their enemies. Yeah, I frequently hear Christians say, I can't stand that person, or I hate that person. Now, when they're challenged, they'll say, well, I don't really mean I hate that person. I hate what they say and what they do. But it's having an impact on Christian believers. And, um, you know, uh, in today's climate of hate, this climate of hate that we seem to be in, we ask the question, you know, uh, how can Christians love their enemies? It's sometimes difficult. It's sometimes very difficult. You know, but uh, my friend, Dr. Michael A. Melton, wrote an article 
three real ways Christians can love their enemies. And in that article, he addresses what Jesus was teaching when he said in Matthew 6, 24, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in him. Now when Jesus said this, you have heard, you have heard, he is addressing the prevailing attitude of the day. It's the challenge we have today. You know, when we hear others say, well, you can't love that guy. You can't interact with that guy. You can't be with that guy. Don't you know who he is? He's someone, perhaps on the left, who doesn't like Christian people. So we have the same prevailing attitude, and here we have Jesus telling us, look, uh, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Now, Dr. Milton's article uh, points out in another setting that Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. All in Luke 6, 27. You know, it's pointed out that uh, Jesus, in, in that address, you know, he was, he was addressing these Jewish governors and tax collectors and other unscrupulous figures who, who used their delegated authority from Rome to fleece their own people. And they were disliked. And so there was a culture of suspicion, intrigue, concealment, uh, distrust, treachery, and sabotage that was casting a shadow on unity in those days. And Jesus was addressing. And I would ask you, why do we refer to Washington as the swamp? The swamp, and that label covers leadership of both parties, Republican and Democrat. The swamp, it's because of the same culture of suspicion and intrigue and concealment and treachery and sabotage exists today. And Americans, by and large, are troubled about it. Um, so... Dr. Milton, in his article, he goes on to outline three lessons on real ways to um, love your enemy. And, um, and he, he outlines three very important principles. His lesson one in his article is, remember the concept of enemy is not a permanent state but a temporary position in other words um, you know hatred of others is a useful tool embraced by ungodly authorities and it's uh, intended to create rage and bitterness and focus on past sin 
about it. But Jesus, Jesus was teaching that we were all once enemies of God. Only through Jesus Christ that we're now friends of God. Friends of God. And the point that Dr. Milton is making is those who persecute us today may in fact, through God's grace, become those who protect us tomorrow. Those who persecute us today may in fact become those who protect us tomorrow. Well, think about the Apostle Paul. You know, he was an aggressive persecutor of believers, um, causing the death of many believers. But what? He became this great missionary to the Gentile nation and the writer of 14 of the 17 books in the New Testament. So, it's true that the transforming power of God will cause many who curse God today to be preaching his word tomorrow. That's one of the reasons that we must love our enemies. And then lesson two, uh, Dr. Milton points out that, you know, we, we must realize that we too were once enemies of God. You know, one of the most famous verses, I often say it is the most famous verse in the Bible, is John 3.16. But if we read on through John uh, 3.16 to verse 18, we get the fullness of its meaning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 16 through 18. So, God saved because we need saving. God saves because we need saving. We're no different than those who uh, oppose, hurt, and persecute us. But you know, the Scripture tells us, but God shows His love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. You know, those living without Christ and God are not unreachable. We know that. So we should pray for them. Pray that God will help us, help us to love them and forgive them. You know, as we remember how God has loved us and forgiven us, we're no different. And then, lesson three. We love our enemies so that we might please the God who loved us. We should love our enemies so that we might please the God who loved us. You know, Luke 6, 35 and 36 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return then your reward will be great. 
and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, the implications of this teaching is clear. There's great reward. There's great reward in loving our enemies and forgiving them for their sins against Hating, dissenting, or holding a grudge against another person only causes greater pain. I have met so many people who have this grudge. You know, sometimes it, they're politically opposed to each other and they have a grudge or something. Someone has done something to them and they have a grudge or it's been an acrimonious divorce and they can't forgive the other spouse. Um, uh, people seem to have these, these grudges. It almost seems to be something that's uh, some kind of innate part of humanity. And the truth of the matter is, holding a grudge against another person only causes greater pain. It's something that will eat at you from within. But when we follow the rich life-giving teaching of Jesus, we're set free from yesterday's pain. You know, free from the ugliness of the sin that stains and affects our relationships, and free from the life-crippling burden of being unforgiving. Now, as we begin to wind down this podcast, I'd like to conclude by quoting Dr. Milton from his article that I would, you know, recommend you read. And he says this, there is no reason for you to remain on the painful cross of unlovingness or in the shame-shrouded of lifelessness. God loves you. He forgives you as you come to him. And he's asking you to get off your cross and be renewed. Jesus is showing you how to love your enemy and teaching us why we must love them. There is no other alternative for one who knows such love in one's own life. This is why Paul wrote, And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. I want to thank you for listening to me today. And I want to encourage you to be one who expresses the love of Jesus Christ to everyone, including your enemies. May God bless you.